The following message is by Dr. J.R. Cuevas, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. It's a privilege to be preaching through this Revelation series and, uh, and to have followed uh, the men who have gone through um, Christ's words to these particular churches. And, and that is my desire, ultimately, is for you to hear um, your shepherd's voice and what he has to say um, to us as the flock of God, because we are his church. We exist for him. We exist for his glory, and we exist to do his will. And we haven't been left uh, without instruction. We don't have to figure out what Christ's will is. He makes it explicit uh, in his word. We don't have to climb up a mountain and, and listen for his voice. It's right here. And uh, like someone said, if you want to hear God speak, then read the Bible out loud, and that's what we'll do. And if you want to understand it, then you have preachers and teachers who help equip the saints by understanding God's Word. And that's what we'll do. And uh, let me pray for us before we uh, jump into this sermon. Father, we uh, are humbled before you as the God of the universe. Uh, we're humbled for uh, just understanding our salvation uh, and the reality of the Holy Spirit's work uh, in us individually and in us as a church. And I do pray that uh, we would all hear Christ's voice, that we would take his words seriously to heart, uh, the encouragements and also the admonitions, and that we as a church would honor you. May you bless uh, the next hour as the word goes forth, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I am in, in a lot of ways like most men in the things that I like, like I do like sports, um, I do like food, um, I do love my family. Uh, there's, there's one way, or there are a couple ways where I'm not like a lot of men. One is I absolutely hate cars or anything that looks like a car. Um, I'm convinced that in the millennial kingdom there will be no cars. Um, my mode of transportation is either going to be in a husky sled or um, riding on a dolphin, so cars will not <laughs> exist there. Um, the other way... Uh, I guess there are a couple more I don't like. Red meat, but that's only because I have trouble digesting it. I don't know if it's because I'm Asian or, or what the case is. But uh, the other way that I'm not like most is um, I'm actually afraid of watching uh, movies that talk about or relate to war. Um, uh, I can watch them once. I can watch movies like Schindler's List and Gladiator and appreciate them for what they actually are and even recommend them but I can only watch them once and, and can't really talk about them with people. And I think it has to do with uh, how I grew up and the stories that I heard growing up from my relatives. Um, I'm alive because my grandmother survived World War II by begging a Japanese soldier while she was hiding to spare her and her family's life. Uh, in 1941 through 1945, I believe, was when uh, the Japanese occupation of the Philippines took place, and when General MacArthur landed in the islands, that's when the Japanese became a lot more aggressive towards uh, the native uh, citizens there, and that's when many of them went into hiding out of fear that they'd be executed or punished, or for a lot of the women put into slavery. And my grandmother's family went hiding underground uh, in an underground trench, and uh, for whatever reason, they were found out by one of the Japanese soldiers, and I believe he was planning to execute them. And she begged him as, I believe, a 9 or a 10-year-old, and, and said, can you think of your own daughter? Uh, and because of that, the soldier had mercy on her, and against his general's orders, actually would bring food and water and supplies to that underground trench where uh, my grandmother and her family were living at that time, uh, things were so bad that her father had to deliver his sister's baby without any medical background um, on his own, underground. And these were the stories that I heard from relatives and family friends growing up. And because of that, I think as a young boy, and maybe it was a mistake for me to have read up on the Holocaust as a fifth grader, because um, I really did. I would go to the se one section of the library when everybody else was reading Dr. Seuss or whatever. And I picked up the diary of Anne Frank, and that scared me, I think, for life, and especially knowing what our family had gone through before I was born. Uh, I would always ask my dad growing up if every person has to experience warfare to some degree um, out of the fear that I would have to do it, even though we were living in, uh, living in Hawaii at the time, which nothing ever happens there. Um, 
And then uh, we moved to, uh, moved to L.A., and then I heard that even if you weren't a U.S. citizen, that you were still required to uh, sign up for the draft if you were male when you turned 18, and that scared me. And then the day came when I did turn 18, and I was in Las Vegas by then. Uh, don't ask me why I moved so many places, but I remember getting the letter in the mail, and all the lights were off in my house, and I sat in the, uh, the kitchen and opened up the letter, and it said I had to sign up for the draft, and I was, I was very, very scared. Uh, and then our guidance counselor, college counselor, asked me when she was talking about colleges, well, by the way, would you like to go to the military? And I immediately looked at her and said, nope. And she said, oops, sorry about that. Um, and I didn't tell her that I had a, a family history of having experienced war. As a parent, my greatest fear is for what happened to my relatives to happen to my family. Um, and as a pastor, uh, the last thing I would want is for our church to have to experience some kind of persecution from a governmental level because we're doing what Christ says we ought to be doing. But I, I realize there is a greater danger, and it's, are we as a church in danger of not the world or society declaring war on us, but are we in danger of Jesus Christ himself declaring war on the church? Because he did do that, and he has done that throughout the history of the church. Every church Every local church, every Christian needs to be able to answer that question. Are you living in such a way that you are making yourself a friend of the world and an enemy of God and therefore declaring Christ as your enemy and letting him declare warfare on you and letting your life show the fruit of that? Every Christian needs to be able to answer that question. We're not left alone to figure that out. The Bible gives us instruction as to how to steer clear of Christ declaring war on a believer, but also the church. Because we are individual Christians, we are a corporate entity. As a local church, we have to be able to answer the question more than the budget, more than the programs, more than anything, more than the numbers. Are we operating in such a way that Christ is honored with us because he is the head of the church and he bought this church with his blood? Or are we operating in a way that will cause Jesus Christ himself to declare war on us. And that's not figurative. When Christ says he declares war, that's, that's, you see inferences of the Old Testament where God says he declares war on his enemies because there was a particular local church which he heard about during the scripture reading which you were informed of in Asia Minor that Christ spoke to who he warned that if they keep doing what they're doing, he would wage war against the church. And that was a church in Pergamum. The words are recorded in Revelation chapter 2, 12 through 17. And let me read it again and just listen to the words, listen to why it happened. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, uh, that's a, a pretty strong introduction. I mean, if I wrote you a letter and you got it in the mail and said, Dear so-and-so, by the way, love the man with a two-edged sword in his mouth. Um, you have to take what I say seriously. And we, when he says, I am the one who has a sharp two-edged sword, says this. In other words, the keys of judgment are in the hands of Jesus Christ, in the mouth of Jesus Christ. What he says ought to be abided by. And then he says in verse... 17. I'm going to skip around here to give you the context. He says, like he did to the other churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This isn't just a history lesson. This was written to the church in Pergamum for the local churches throughout history to understand. In other words, let he who has an ear, if you have the capacity to understand God's Word and the teaching of God's Word, if you have the capacity to comprehend, if you have the opportunity to hear, let him here. We cannot say, but I didn't know. You are accountable for everything you hear about what Christ has to say. And Revelation 2 speaks to, 2 and 3 speaks to seven churches. Why were these seven churches selected? There were a lot more than seven local churches in the Roman Empire at that time. It's because these seven churches would represent historically what local churches would look like throughout the history of the church. 
there are a lot of, just follow this, there are a lot of affectionless churches. There are a lot of churches that are doing the quote-unquote, the right things, but have lost their first love and that Jesus is calling to repent, hence the church in Ephesus. There are a lot of lukewarm churches, and you'll hear about that when you hear Christ's letter to the church in Laodicea. And there are a lot of dead churches, the church in Sardis, which Christ spoke to. Eh, Think about it. There are churches here called, I'm going through the list, Antioch Bible Church. They're named after geographical regions that are significant in the Bible. Antioch Bible Church, because Antioch was the city uh, where the church was that sent Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey. There's Emmaus Bible Church, or is it Emmaus Community, Emmaus Bible, because it wasn't the Emmaus Road where the resurrected Christ appeared to the two men and showed himself through Scripture. The first ever Bible study post-resurrection took place on the Emmaus Road. There's Berean Bible Church, and that one is is almost self-explanatory because the church needs to be noble-minded and test the words of the preacher who preaches and not just be yes-men. When have you ever heard of a Sardis Bible Church? No one wants to be known as a dead church, right? Sardis, sardines, can of sardines, dead, right? That's for free. (laughs) Now, the church, I haven't heard of a Pergamum Bible Church either or a Pergamum Community Church. I don't know of of a lady named Jezebel, right? I don't know of a man named Judas, who at least is in the church. We don't name churches and people after people or places that have a negative connotation in the Bible. So what, what happened to this church? Because look at verse 13, and this is what Jesus said to the church. And quite frankly, these are words that I would love to hear. If I ever got not a, not a parent-teacher conference, right, but a, a great shepherd to an under-shepherd evaluation, right? He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and look, you hold fast to my name. You didn't deny me. You did not deny the faith. This is a faithful, evangelical, born-again church. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. So this is a church that withstood persecution, that was faithful, and that had one of their leaders potentially martyred. And therefore, right, there was every excuse for the church to fall away from the faith, but they didn't. And Christ said he recognizes that. So this seems like a good, healthy church. And it is, from all that it looks like here, a born-again, believing church. Again, I would love to hear these words from Jesus Christ. But then you look at 17, so I'm sandwiching things here, and you'd expect, if this, was, if this was your report, then Jesus would say, then you keep doing what you're doing. No church is perfect, we heard that, but just keep doing what you're doing, you'll continue to grow. But Jesus says, in verse 16 actually, therefore repent. Why would you have to repent if you're a church that looks like this already, where you're faithful in the midst of persecution? He who has an ear, let him hear, therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly. The judgment is coming quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The man, the Christ, the God with the two-edged sword will make war with this church if they don't repent from what they're doing. So what is it that the church did wrong in one sentence, which we'll expose? What is it that GBF I would hope that we are a church that holds fast to Christ's name, that endures persecution, that doesn't deny the faith, even if someone here down the line were ever martyred for the faith. But what is it that we could fall into, that we could very well fall into, if we're not careful, that would cause Jesus Christ to wage war on us as a church? And the answer is this. We'll go through it, but I'm going to say it. The answer is this. Because this was a church that tolerated evil. It didn't, as a whole church, follow it. It didn't claim to be a sinless church, but it tolerated evil and two particular kinds of evil. Idolatry and sexual immorality. The church, every local church that claims to be a church of Christ. I don't mean that in the colloquial sense, but I mean you are a church who submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to the glory of Jesus Christ, cannot afford to tolerate 
the presence of any kind of teaching that endorses or permits or embraces idolatry, ceremonial or personal, or sexual immorality in all of its forms. And I realize I could get shot for saying that up here. But we don't want Jesus Christ to make war with our church. And so when he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Creekside Bible Church, we're down the road in history. Let him hear. Listen to the words that he said to Pergamum. Three things you see here, three directives regarding this tolerance of idolatry and immorality. And I, I, I love what Master Samuel did to us. You, do, you start all your outlines with the same letter. So there are three Ps. P is the magic letter today. There's no such thing as magic. But th- P is the letter. Okay, you have resisting the pressure, right? Beware of the punishment and hope and the prize. And so let's, let's talk about the first one. The church has to, okay? The church has to resist every form of pressure to tolerate ceremonial, personal idolatry, or sexual immorality. Verses 13 through 15. He says, Jesus says, <laughs> the first two words are, are pretty powerful. I know. He says this to every church, and it's true for every church. The omniscience of Jesus Christ. He knows everything about everybody in every local church. There is not a single activity or endeavor that takes place in our planet that escapes the eyes of Jesus Christ. There's not a single activity or endeavor in your personal life that Jesus Christ doesn't see. And there's not a single activity or endeavor that takes place in the life of any local church, no matter where on the globe. It could be a church in Antarctica, right? Uh, Filled with penguins, and Jesus still knows what's going on there. Christ doesn't just hear about what's happening through secondhand sources. He sees it, and he says to this church, even though they may have never seen him physically, I know. And look at this. I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know your region. Christ knows Pergamum. And here's something that you won't get this from your Bibles because there's no history textbook in there, but let me zoom you out of that for a little bit. Pergamum was known as, in the Roman Empire, which included Asia, the most distinguished city in Asia. And part of the reason was because it was a huge center for education because it had the second largest library in the Roman Empire next to the one in Alexandria. And so when, you have, when you're a center of education like that, just like in cities here, right, and the, the cities in the United States, if, if you think about it, that have the largest and most prestigious universities are also cities that are not only well-educated, but you have cultural diversity, and you tend to have a booming or a thriving economy. There's lots of thoughts. People tend to look very, very cultured. So places like Silicon Valley, places like Cambridge, places like upstate or upstate New York, right, or New York City, those regions, because of the universities, because they're centers of education, tend to be, in our country at least, the distinguished, in some ways prominent, cultured, educated cities. And Jesus says about this beautiful, educated, cultured city, Pergamum, probably a clean city as well, he says, I know where you dwell, and it is where Satan's throne is. The most distinguished and royal an educated city in Christ's eyes was satanic. And one of the reasons may be because Pergamum was also not only a center for education, it was the center, the center in the Roman Empire or in Asia for pagan deity worship where ceremonial idolatry took place in these temples that were specifically built and put together to worship these pagan gods like Zeus and also where temple cult prostitution took place, and it was also the place where emperor worship took place most frequently. And as a believer, as a Christian, you were in danger of getting persecuted if you didn't participate in these festivals that were meant to worship the emperor. And so you were in danger 
every day. In the Roman Empire, once a year, you had to bring these sacrifices to the temple worship, right, for these ceremonial idolatrous worship festivals. But so Christians could have been throughout the Roman Empire in danger once a year. These Christians were in danger of treason, punishable at a governmental level, possibly every day. And remember this, right? Because when we think satanic activity, we think people who are insane, corner of the streets, screaming at the top of their lungs, ladies screaming in low voices, right? Cutting themselves, running around, jumping into fires, and which you do see in the Gospels. But as you see here, sometimes a satanic city takes the form of a beautiful, cultured, and educated city. And it all has to do with what that city worships and promotes. And so Jesus says, this is the place where Satan's throne is. And this is the place where Satan dwells. And he gives them the commendation. He says, you have held fast to my name. You didn't deny my faith. Even when one of yours was martyred, there is pressure for you as a Christian to give in to their practices. But he says this, I have a few things against you. And that's the worst thing, right? When someone's complimenting you, right? And it's the, but I'm waiting for the, but this. And you just wait for it. And this is, this is scary when he says, when Jesus says, I have this against you. In other words, you have a target on you. If you don't get rid of it, I will attack you. You have some, he says in verse 14, this is what he has against them. You have some, not the whole church isn't like this. You're just, just some, just a small group, big group, small group, medium group, I don't know. But there are some, and they're not being disciplined for it. They're not being removed in the church for it. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, when there was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, and they said, purge the evil man from among you. And there were some who were not being purged from the congregation, from the assembly. And what were they doing? These some held to the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. And so you have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Teaching, teaching, teaching. There are some who are teaching things, the teachings of Balaam, and following the teachings of the Nicolaitans. There was false teaching happening in the church, and it's specifically teaching that led to the endorsement of or the permission of idolatry and sexual immorality amongst the members of the church. Now, you remember what happened to Balaam? This is Numbers 25. Balak, who was the king of Moab, was afraid that Israel was going to defeat Moab, and so he tells the prophet Balaam, curse Israel for me, but Balaam doesn't do it, right? He blesses Israel, but what Balaam did do is he instructed Balak, in other words, if you want God's judgment on them, don't do it through my prophecy. What you do need to do is lure Israel into immorality with your women. And so that's exactly what Balak did. He lured Israel into idolatry and harlotry and immorality with the Moabite women. And Israel was judged for it. You know, there's the reason why um, I was talking about this with someone earlier. Teachers are supposed to be few. Let not, not, let not many of you be teachers because we stumble in many ways and you can lead people to stumble in the same way. And why, why was, I mean, think about, why was, why was seminary so hard? Um, there were so many times in seminary where the workload is, I mean, think about this. My worst subjects in school, in high school, were I was a math and science guy through high school and college. My worst subjects were history, foreign languages, and writing. And then I go to seminary, and all I'm doing is history, foreign languages, and writing. And the foreign languages were dead languages. And I'm thinking, I can't read backwards. I can't read symbols. This looks like math. And I can't write. And I have to write this 20-page paper and read 400 pages in one night. And I can't read. I was tested slow for reading comprehension, believe it or not. Um, seminary was so hard because they train you because lives depend on it. Lives depend on your teaching because by your teaching, you could lead people to warfare with Jesus Christ. The teachings of Balaam, in other words, there were people in the church who just like Balaam instructed 
Balak to lead Israel into immorality and idolatry. There were people in the church who perhaps because of the pressure of the culture were engaging in ceremonial idolatry. They were actually going to these pagan festivals, giving the food, sacrificing things to idols, and sleeping with the temple prostitutes. And in those things included debauchery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality. They were doing all that. And then they were coming to church that Sunday. And people say, well, that was all in the Old Testament. Immorality was defined in the Old Testament, but I've actually watched documentaries on that said, what's written in the Old Testament doesn't apply to the New Testament Christians. Never heard that? I'm just a New Testament saint. You're a New Testament ain't. That's what you are, right? <laughs> uh, because some things don't apply. Circumcision is no longer mandated. Thank goodness, right? Especially for adults. But in Acts, in the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, 29, the edict by the apostles was this, for the Gentiles, that they still have to abstain, Acts 15, 29, from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. In other words, what was defined in the Old Testament as idolatry still applies to the New Testament, to Gentiles. What was defined as immorality in all its forms is still immorality for the church. We still have to abstain from them. And he says, so you have some in the same way who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And through church history, we understand that the Nicolaitans were a group that infiltrated the church, that led people into indulgence and sexual immorality and idolatry. So the teaching of the Nicolaitans by principle, by skeletal anatomy, were the same teachings of Balaam. In other words, long story short, you had people in the church wasn't the whole church, wasn't the pastors even. He doesn't speak to the shepherds like he does to the Pharisees, but there were people in the church who were engaged in these kind of sins, and for whatever reason, the church tolerated it, didn't remove them from their presence, unlike the Ephesian church did, which hated this kind of teaching, if you, if you go back to Ephesians. In other words, the church was being pressured to do the things that the Bible said not to do, and some in the church were caving in. Here's an easy illustration. If you want to know what it's like to feel pressure to do wrong, you don't have to go to school and feel peer pressure. Just drive on the freeway and just try this out. Put your car in cruise control at 65 on the freeway, which is the speed limit, by the way. Um, it is in the law. Don't go over it and watch how many people tailgate you, how many people purposely swerve around you, and how many people even honk at you and you will feel pressure, pressure, literally, feels like it's pushing on you, who will break the law. The church has always felt the pressure to compromise in these two areas, idolatry, immorality. And we have to understand, because it's written to our church today, we have to know the times, 1 Chronicles 12.33 says that the sons of Issachar were outstanding because they knew the times. They understood the times. Um, and we do face pressure as a church, as Christians, to deal with idolatry. When I first became a college pastor, we had students who came to faith in the ministry. And some of them were, I don't want to say kidnapped because your parents don't kidnap you, but some of them were put and dragged two Buddhist temples with their parents who were angry that they became Christians. Others were being forced to participate in family ancestor worship, which they didn't want to do. And when they refused to bow, they were reprimanded. There is pressure. But if you think about it, we don't get pressure from the government to, put, to recite Islamic prayers in our church. We don't feel pressure here to put up a Buddha here. Uh, a Buddha statue. Um, we're not pressured in the same way that other cultures are around the world that are pressured that way today to ceremonially do things that are of another religion in the liturgical worship service. But we are pressured, and this is happening at a higher intensity 
week after week after week. We are being pressured to compromise on the area of sexual immorality, particularly on the church's moral stance on gender, orientation, and the definition of marriage. And you can say, well, I don't know any Christian circles whose members participate in pagan festival prostitution. But an evangelical pastor who wrote books on relationships, many of those books that I read and used, who decides to no longer be a Christian and march on an LGBT parade with a rainbow-filled donut and then write this on Instagram that I regret standing against marriage equality and for not affirming you and your place in the church and for in any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a cultural exclusion and bigotry, I hope you can forgive me. Who are you asking for forgiveness from? Joshua Harris, wake up! Churches are caving in. You ever see those signs in Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches, Lutheran churches that say all are welcome? And they're not talking about race. And the churches that are not giving in are being attacked. The institutions that are not giving in are being attacked. There are Christian schools in the Bay Area today that are being sued by the public and threatened to be removed from their, the property that they're renting because they put it on their statement of faith that they believe marriage is between a man and a woman. And some of us in this church work in those schools and have to face that pressure. Now, for the record, the church will always have people who either struggle with sexual immorality or have a background I used to tell someone in counseling, what you realize is every person in some way, shape, or form has a distorted view of sexual purity because of their background. And one of the most harmful things I realize you can do as a pastor is unnecessarily come down hard or condemning to someone who is struggling with any form of immorality. There are pastors who, when people confide in them that they're struggling with certain things, they honestly look like they looked at, they're looking at someone from Mars. Like, what are you? They're, they're people. That's what they are. There was another pastor who said, if you struggle with any kind of purity issue or lust, then you're a second-class Christian and you are, by definition, immature. And that, that is just irresponsible of pastors and Christians to do. If you can't deal with the church, if as a church you can't deal or don't know how to deal with people graciously who have that background of any kind of immorality and help them through it and help them navigate through the Christian life because of it, then you, you shouldn't be a local church. And if as a pastor you can't do it, then you shouldn't be a pastor. That's part of your duty. But to help someone who is struggling to whatever degree against immorality or idolatry for that matter, is very, very different, entirely different from embracing someone who is insisting on that lifestyle as acceptable. There's a difference between being patient and being tolerant. Being patient has to do with the rate that you expect sinful habits to overcome, to be overcome. People always ask that. When am I going to change? Just wait five years. You'll look different, right? It's like a kid asking you, when am I going to grow? Well, Stretch yourself tonight. Maybe you'll grow an inch tomorrow. People take time to change. Churches take time to change. But that's patience. Tolerance is you allowing a particular sinful habit to exist without any commitment on your part to dealing with it. And in that same light, there is a difference between compassion and compromise. Compassion has to do with how your heart breaks for people who are struggling with sin and pain. And compromise has to do with you allowing those sinful practices to exist and even flourish without doing anything about it. We as ministers, as Christians, as parents, are to be filled with patience towards sinners, including ourselves, not tolerance. There's a difference. You have to know the difference. We're filled with compassion, but we don't compromise. And you see that. James says... 
heavenly wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruit, but also without hypocrisy and unwavering and pure. Those things can coexist with integrity in Christian living and in the life of the church. We can't rewrite God's laws. I'm not into this whole progressive thing. You might think that because I'm not wearing a suit, right? Are you of the progressive type? Well, guess what? I preached in Hawaii a couple weeks ago, and I was wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Is that progressive enough? And it was nice. It was soft. It was airy. I felt like I could breathe. I'm like, this is the best sermon experience I've ever had, right? Not only that, but it was at a church that was walking distance from my old house. I'm thinking, this is everything I want in preaching. I could pole vault to my house right now, and I'm in a Hawaiian shirt, and it's a nice, and it's a master's seminary graduate church, and I'm in a Hawaiian shirt right? We can't rewrite. The only progressive thing in me is progressive sanctification that I believe in and progressive dispensationalism, which I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I am, by the way. But God's moral character is timeless. Idolatry in the Old Testament is the same as idolatry in the New Testament, and immorality in the Old Testament is the same as immorality in the New Testament. In the Old and the New, any form of expression of sexual relations outside the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman that God had ordained, which includes but is not limited to adultery, polygamy, incest, homosexuality, fornication, pornography, self-gratification, bestiality, object sexuality, prostitution, debauchery, and anything such as this. And you cannot say, you cannot say, like a lot of people are saying, I follow Jesus and therefore I don't follow religion. I hear that all the time. Christianity is not about a religion, it's about a relationship. It's true, and the relationship requires the will of God to be living in your life. Because to say that, to say that I'm following Jesus, therefore I don't follow rules, I don't follow laws, is coming out of a mouth from a person who has a warped view of the glory of Jesus Christ and what he expects from those who call him Lord. The church in 1 Timothy 3.15 is the pillar and support of the truth. And that truth has to be protected. When it's violated in a ceremonial and large-scale manner by anyone who calls himself a Christian who's a part of the church, we have to resist the pressure, because here is the second point. Here is the punishment for it. He says, therefore, repent. 180. This is the one action item Jesus has for the church. He doesn't say, just keep doing what you're doing. He doesn't say, just, just focus on what's right. This whole positive reinforcement thing, ever heard that in schools now? We don't tell kids they're doing things wrong. It's all about positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is for dolphins, not for people. This is not positive reinforcement. This is an admonition. Jesus says, repent. In other words, stop what you're doing. Have a change of mind and turn around. Do an about face and start walking in the opposite direction that you're walking in. Church, stop tolerating these things. Be gracious, be compassionate, be humble, but don't tolerate it. And here's, here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't say, hey, your church needs special therapy. He says the same thing to this church as he does to every other sinner. Mark 1, 14 through 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe. What is the Christian life all about? What do you need to do to get saved? Repent and believe. There's nothing there about therapy. I love biblical counseling, but I always tell people I'm not a therapist. Repent and believe. And if you don't, he says, or else. That's another scary word that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Or else. As a kid, remember hearing that from your parent? Do this. Or else. And unlike a lot of us, right, I'm guilty of this too. Jesus lives up to what he says. I say this facetiously because she actually wouldn't have done it, right? And I'm saying this in, in, in 
ahead of time in case she's listening to this sermon. When I was growing up, parents were trying to push me to get better grades. And there came a day where I came home with a math test, um, where I got everything wrong, or a math worksheet. It was just a worksheet. I don't know why it was a big deal. But I got everything wrong. And mom said, maybe this was acceptable because we were in Asia. I don't know. But she said, if you get C's on your report card, I will sell both of your dogs. And if you know me by now, that is heartbreaking. Uh, and then she said, and if you do it again, I will pull you out of school and make you a houseboy. Get A's or else, bye-bye doggies, and hello to being a houseboy. I'm saying that facetiously because she would have never done it. Um, in fact, when I did say, Mom, I would like to, this is now in high school, I would like to become the valedictorian of my high school. She goes, what? I'm like, well, that's encouraging. I said, you should be encouraging me. I'm trying to be ambitious here. But your friends are smarter than you. Um, <laughs> it was true. The valedictorian went to Princeton and Harvard and now wrote a research paper that I can understand a word of. But when Jesus says, or else I will make war, that's not a threat. That's a promise. In other words, by implication, he will destroy that particular local church in some way or put it out of existence or make war with those people. Now, some of you may have, may have been in Hawaii in January 2018 when there was a, an accidental false missile threat, right? Um, was anyone there? Someone was there. Yep, there you go. Um, someone was there. And now the, the threat said, right, missile alert issued... Seek shelter. This is not a drill. And people started saying goodbye to their families. Some people who were visiting started calling their families from the mainland. And others just started to pray, looking out at the ocean. They started to meditate for the first time in their lives, right? But I guarantee you, no one said, well, that was rude. That's bigotrous. Afterwards, they probably did, right? When they realized that it was a mistake, um, when people accuse the church for upholding a moral stance on religion, on sexual practice, and they say we're being haters and discriminators and bigots, that's just not true. We don't say it because we hate people. We say it because we don't want you to die. The church is here to bring salvation, to bring the salvation message that can save you. We don't want Jesus Christ to make war against you. That's why we're telling you that. And if you take that as bigotry, then I don't know what to do with you. Because when Christ comes and wages war on the church, there are no accommodations. He will put the church out. Now, just to illustrate what this looks like, because you're thinking, well, this is scary Jesus. Um, you know, when, when, like I mentioned, I did grow up in, in Hawaii for several years, and I loved every part of it, but I also loved animals growing up, and Hawaii doesn't have the big animals that California or the Rockies do. So I just read about them in books, and particularly I was fond of the mountain lion, because you never see those there. And then when we moved to California, and I went hiking, and I saw the sign that said, beware of the mountain lion. I mean, I wanted to go to college for zoology. And you, you could imagine how excited I got. In fact, when I was going to go hiking at the Grand Canyon alone, my wife told me that she was afraid that if I saw a mountain lion, I would try to chase it. <laughs> she said, please bring someone with you because they are, they're beautiful animals. Um, they've got speed and the power and the agility all in one. Um, from a zoological perspective, they're one of the most intricately designed, well put together animals, and they're also very, very dangerous. And that's not a bad thing. And now in the book of Revelation, think about this, when it talks about Jesus as the Lion of Judah, 
coming to overcome his enemies. He is merciful, he is kind, he is gracious, and he gives salvation, and he is also dangerous to everyone who goes against and resists his will. The paradox of all this is that to tolerate, as a church, to tolerate immorality is politically incorrect because you are bringing war upon your church. So how do you do? So what do you do from it? And Jesus doesn't leave us without some positive instruction. He says in verse 17, this is the prize, hope in the prize for resisting it, for resisting the pressure to tolerate. Resist the pressure, beware of the punishment, but you hope in the prize. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, in other words, for you who resist, it's a battle, there's pressure, but for you who overcome, you get over the hump, you don't give up, you stay firm in the ways of Christ, for you in Pergamum who remain faithful, to he who overcomes, I will not wage war, I will give two things, the hidden manna, remember manna from the Old Testament, allusion again to the book of Numbers, fell from heaven to sustain Israel when there was no food in the desert, when Christ calls himself the bread of life, the hidden manna, the one who gives eternal life, eternal satisfaction to all who believe in him, they will never hunger and thirst. God's giving of the hidden manna is giving a life, a sustenance, and a satisfaction. And why is it hidden? Because it's something that the people in this world who don't know Christ will never get to experience. It's hidden from them. The mysteries of the kingdom of God are hidden from them, but revealed to you. The Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Do not fear. Not only that, but I will give you, he says, I appreciate this one as an athlete, I will give him, doesn't matter who him is or her is, no matter what your background is, if you overcome, you stay firm, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone. What's this whole white stone thing about? Well, the white stone was, in their version of the Olympics, if you won a Roman athletic competition, instead of getting a medal, you got a white stone with your name engraved on it, and that was your admissions ticket to the Winner's Festival. So it served for two purposes. Okay, if you got the stone, just like you get a gold medal, right? it's recognition for what you accomplish, which is why your name is engraven on there. It can't be taken off, can't be erased, right? can't be deleted, and it gets you an admissions ticket to the festival where you get to celebrate with everybody else who has overcome. A Roman athlete at this time reading this would see that entire picture. Like a gold medal, but back then it was a stone. You would forever be recognized for your life of faithfulness and what you did for Jesus Christ and what he did for you. And you will forever and eternally have admission into the kingdom dwelling where you get to feast with Christ every day of your life. So this is what's amazing. Uh, Jesus, in his grace, is leaving room for sinners and compromisers and churches that compromise to repent and inherit eternal life. He doesn't say, you've done this and therefore I cannot forgive you. He doesn't say that. He says, repent, and if you do, if you overcome. If you don't repent, I will wage war. But if you do, no matter how bad your sin was, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross covers you and you have eternal forgiveness of sins for every sin that you have committed. The sin of compromise, the sin of idolatry, ceremonial or personal, the sin of sexual immorality, no matter what the form, is not an unforgivable sin. It is forgivable. And if you read through the gospel accounts, he forgave many. The prostitutes, he said, will enter the kingdom of God before you do. He will not hold our sins against us. He will forgive them and he will receive us into his eternal dwellings. Not because of what we've done. We have sinned. We have sinned. Every single person here has sinned. 
And I want to, I want to, I venture to say every single person here has had some sin in these two areas of some sort to some degree. You repent and believe and those sins, not because you merited it, but because Jesus loved you, are forgiven, and nothing will be held against you in any way when you reach the kingdom of heaven. There are a lot of churches today that are growing numerically. They're just multiplying like rabbits. I don't know how it happens. And the buildings are getting nicer. Rooms are being added. Just construction going on. <laughs> Programs are getting more structured. Curriculum is being ordered. The coffee is getting more foo-foo. Music is getting trendier. Drums are getting louder. I'm not against drums, by the way. I, I like them. <laughs> Side note, because I grew up in the Catholic Church, for the longest time as a believer, I had a problem with hymns because it reminded me of the Catholic Church. But month by month and year by year, these churches are becoming more and more tolerant. That is the great mistake of being a church that caves in to the pressure that the government of the city in which you live in pushes you in any of these two areas. War is coming. We're called to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ who fight the fight of faith. And beware of putting yourself on the other side. The way to do this, along with never forsaking your first love, is to absolutely refuse to compromise on what God has said is right and wrong. For the glory of God alone, the church exists. And through the blood of Christ alone, the church was purchased. And if we, as a local church, do not honor this, he will make sure that it is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the clarity of your word. We have heard the shepherd's voice. We believe what we've heard. Give us the strength to withstand all pressure, all persecution, all affliction for the sake of the purity of what we believe and what we do. Help us be gracious to the world to be salt and light, but to not lose the saltiness through compromise and tolerance. Help us be compassionate. Help us be patient, but help us be pure and unwavering in all things. For the glory of Christ alone, we pray. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.